Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flyover State Science, a podcast where two Midwestern scientists demystify the coolest science out of the middle of the country. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Jackie. And we're here to do the research so that you don't have to. Welcome to this special episode of Flyover State Science. This is a continuation of our topic of diabetes, and we had such a great time talking with Dr. Krista Manton about her experience as a scientist and as someone living with type 1 diabetes that we have dedicated an entire episode to that interview. And so this will be special because there won't be our typical Mythbusters and two segments where we talk about um, different topics. It'll just be the interview, but... We are extremely excited to share this with you. Okay, today we are here with Dr. Krista Manton, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Kansas Med Center. Dr. Manton, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you got interested in science and sort of how you came to this point in your life as a scientist? Sure. So I am flyover state, born and raised, so I think I'm somewhat qualified to be here, maybe. Um, And I actually did not know that I was going to choose science as a career until maybe a little later in my life. I was probably toward the end of high school, and I was going to be an English major originally. Um, But I actually realized that science is what challenged me and was actually more difficult for me. And I was really drawn to that. So I ended up kind of making a last minute choice to be a biology major in undergrad. And it ended up working very well, thankfully. I really loved it. And in undergrad, I got involved in a research laboratory. At the time, I was studying corn genetics and development. And it's a very, very flyover state once again. But very important, everyone needs corn. Everyone needs corn, and I will defend until the day that I die that corn is very interesting. The genetics of corn, very cool, so I will die with that stance. From there, I love what I was doing, but I also knew that I wanted to choose a question that has some kind of public health relevance. Um, And from there, I ended up deciding to study cancer biology, mostly from a class that I had where I realized that, first of all, you don't really need to explain why cancer is important. Everyone knows, like, cancer is terrible. We should study it. But also, cancer is a very, very interesting biology puzzle. It's very complex, very interesting, and I knew that I would probably never get bored if I chose that. So from there, I ended up going to graduate school down in Houston, Texas at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and got my PhD in cancer biology, studying a type of brain tumor therapy. So did that for a few years, and then... Once again, love the flyover state, managed to scurry back to the Midwest, and I'm doing a postdoc here, once again studying cancer, uh, this time studying the biology of how cancer spreads through the body and how we can hopefully stop that someday. So still doing cancer, different project, but just kind of expanding my knowledge of that field. That's very cool. Your career has definitely taken an interesting path, and I'm sure there's more interesting stuff to come. Like you said, with cancer, it never gets boring. It's, it's always something new, a new problem. Now, you had something sort of interesting happen to you towards the end of graduate school, and you ultimately, spoiler alert, ended up finding out that you were type 1 diabetic. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of symptoms you had and sort of what happened leading up to your diagnosis of type 1 diabetes? Definitely. So 
Uh, the symptoms probably started about three months before I actually defended my PhD. And at the time, I made a lot of excuses because I was super tired, but all my friends were tired in graduate school. So I kind of excused it as like, well, this is just my life right now. But in reality, I was coming home every day and going to pet my dog and then kind of just lying down on the floor and then kind of falling asleep. So there was some extreme exhaustion happening, but I was kind of dismissing that. And I also had kind of the classic symptoms that you do hear about diabetes. So um, having to go to the bathroom all the time to the point that you can't like watch a movie in a theater without planning your escape route, which is not normal. But once again, you can kind of justify in your head if you're in denial. And then also a lot of it was, you know, the biggest meal that I ate was in the evenings, dinner time. And because of that big meal I was eating and not knowing I was diabetic, when I went to go to bed that night, I would be sweating, unable to sleep, and in some cases having a hard time breathing actually, which now that I say it like that is like, how did I not think something was wrong? But really dismissed all this for a while because I was graduating, I was busy, I thought everything would get better, uh, defended my PhD in December, went home for Christmas, spent the entire Christmas break sick, uh, came back in January, uh, had a delightful Cheesecake Factory meal for my birthday in January, and then kind of the next day, that was when it kind of hit, like I have to come to grips, something is very wrong. And interestingly, the thing that finally got to me is that uh, I had gone from a healthy, if slender weight, so I'll be honest, I'm 5'8", and I was around 135 pounds, so a normal weight on the slim side. I had actually lost around 30 pounds oh. over a three-month period. Oh, goodness. And Right. So, like, I knew that wasn't healthy. Like, everyone's like, you're complaining about losing weight. It was not healthy. I was very emaciated. And that's actually uh, the thing that finally, like, I called my mom and was like, I know something is not right. Like, mm -hmm. denial's over. Birthday dinner's over. It's time to actually <laughs> look at this uh, and see what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, the denial thing, I mean, it's easy in hindsight, right, to look back and see all those right. red flags. But as you're as these things are happening and you're noticing different things about your life, it's really easy to be like, oh, well, of course I'm sweaty. You know, I'm trying to save money on my air conditioner bill. And, right. you know, Definitely. I have to go to the bathroom a lot, but I've been drinking more water and it's stressful time. So. And it is sort of a gradual thing, right? It's not mm -hmm. like one day you wake up and you feel terrible. It's like mm -hmm. over time you notice like, oh, all of a sudden I can't watch a movie without going. Mm -hmm. you know so these things happen over time and unless you really think about it altogether the pieces don't really fit yeah yeah how long was it between when you first kind of noticed or remember kind of feeling off to when like your birthday when it was like right so I think I can trace symptoms back to probably September and then my birthday is January 13th um, so it's probably you know about four months and my diagnosis day is actually January 15th slash 16th. It's hard because I was actually misdiagnosed at first, so I don't oh. know what to cause my call my diagnosis date. Mm -hmm. um, but it's around there, so about four months of building to this. So what happened when you went to the do doctor and said, I think there's something wrong with me, I've lost all this weight, You know, I've been, my body's been doing weird stuff? I actually have a family history of type 1, so I had seen this happen to someone close to me. A very similar thing also with the weight loss being pretty extreme. 
So that was actually in my head. And I was still in denial enough that I didn't want to go to the doctor and be like, nothing is wrong with you. You're overreacting, even though mm-hmm. clearly it was. Uh, so I actually went to the drugstore. You can get a $15 glucose meter at home. Mm. I got a glucose meter. I went and I ate my Chipotle. And then I waited two hours and tested myself. And after trying to test a couple times and getting error messages, I finally got a reading of 512 <gasps> with a little flashing light that said ketones. Um, and nice. so for all of you, a normal blood glucose range is around 80 to 120 Ideally, below 200, at least, is good. So 512, you should be in a hospital, definitely. Um, So at that point, I got myself to a hospital and told them it was happening. Wow. What was the misdiagnosis? So the misdiagnosis is actually a a big problem with people who are type 1 as adults, which is that they thought that I was type 2, which, though the disease has the same name, it has very different uh, background as to what's happening and also requires very different treatment. Mm -hmm. So the doctor actually looked at me and he said, well, you're not obese, but you're an adult, so you're probably type two. And I actually did request the tests for type one because family history, which I had told him, um, but he was pretty sure I was type two. So he actually sent me home with a blood sugar of around, they got it down to about 300 using IV fluids and sent me home with a script, a prescription for a type two drug, which if you guys know about that, um, type two drugs mostly sensitize you to insulin, mm. but type ones aren't producing insulin. So there's nothing to be sensitive to. So a type two drug isn't really going to do anything at that point. Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a friend who's a nurse who heard what was happening and came and stayed with me that night. And then the next day I got up and called like every endocrinologist in the phone book, which by the way, specialists don't like taking appointments with no referral. Um, it's not easy. Oh. I, I may have emotionally like manipulated my way into an appointment that day, very thankfully, um, because the endocrinologist who I ended up seeing was amazing, uh, heard my story, listened very intently, didn't say anything, kind of nodded went into the hallway and I heard her yelling, we need insulin in here right now. So um, she thankfully got on things very fast. Wow. But that's one of the things I did want to mention. Uh, Misdiagnosis of adults with type 1 is actually a pretty huge problem. It does happen in adults, and almost everyone that I've talked to that is an adult when they're diagnosed goes through a period of misdiagnosis. I'm actually very lucky that my period was 24 hours People have gone months sometimes without getting the correct diagnosis and symptoms can get very bad during that time. So it's very important to realize that this can happen to adults too. Absolutely. And I know that some uh, people would historically refer to type 1 diabetes as juvenile diabetes, but uh, that's kind of being phased out at this point, right? Because we're realizing that more and more adults can be diagnosed properly with type 1. Is yeah. That right? Yeah, there's definitely a push to go towards just calling it type 1 diabetes um, and to really stress the fact that it can occur in adults. Because in general, because of the rareness of type 1, even in kids, they can go through a period where they aren't diagnosed correctly and it's very dangerous. So Mm -hmm. there's a huge push to raise awareness of what the symptoms are, what to look for in both kids and adults, and what the proper tests are to make sure that you're diagnosed correctly. What are, just, I'm not sure if you know or not, so what is the test? Like, when you go to the doctor's office, 
And they want to know, I mean, like, they can't obviously, like, send your blood to mass spec to see if there's insulin in it, right? Or... There's a protein they can measure that correlates with the amount of insulin in your blood. Mm -hmm. And they can also, actually, for type 1, they can measure and check for antibodies against... Basically, they check for the immune reaction that's killing your pancreas. They can detect that. If you're close enough and there's still active attack of your pancreas, they can actually detect the antibodies that are attacking your pancreas. So once you got your diagnosis fixed by advocating for yourself with the doctors and the specialists... uh, so things eventually evened out a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about just what a normal day looks like uh, as a type 1 diabetic? So I think one of the key things is just sort of the sheer number of times that's on your mind during the day. It kind of becomes this constant program running in the background. Once you get good at it, it's always kind of in the background to monitor this. So the first thing we wake up in the morning, the first thing before you go to bed at night, is always thinking about what your blood sugar level is, where it's headed, what you're doing. So when I wake up in the morning, the first thing I do is reach for the nightstand and check my blood sugar on my monitor to see where I'm at. And then from there, you get up and I'm a breakfast person. I love breakfast. So at breakfast, you get to do your first math of the day, which is fun. And it's also why I usually eat set meals for breakfast because I don't want to do new math. Um, But basically, before I'm going to eat a meal, I have to figure out how much insulin I'm actually going to take for it because that has to be adjusted based on how many carbs you're eating. And the interesting thing is every person is different. So everyone has a different ratio of how much insulin they require for how many carbs they're going to eat. Mine right now is around one unit of insulin for every six grams of carbs that I eat. People can go up to like one to 20 if they're super lucky. It just depends. So basically, you figure out how many carbs you're going to eat, and then you divide that by your ratio for how much insulin you need, and then you're also thinking about where your blood sugar currently is. Do you need to correct something to bring your blood sugar down? Do you need to use less insulin to bring your blood sugar up? And figuring that all out. And the super fun thing as a scientist is actually the fact that I've talked to other scientists with type 1 as well, and we all agree sometimes your instincts are better than the math. It's just kind of how life works with this disease, which as someone who loves science and facts is very hard. Um, But basically you're trying to figure out how to uh, dose the insulin for this meal. You finally get that and it's great and you get to eat a delightful meal. And then it's kind of your program through the day before I drive my car. I'm checking my blood glucose to see what's going on. And then before and after every meal, the same thing. And yeah, just kind of in the background program. And I think the other big thing is exercise. So in the evenings, I exercise. And that's also kind of a math tango that you get to do because the blood sugar for me needs to be over 100 for me to exercise, but it also can't be too high because it's dangerous to exercise with very high blood sugar. So you're kind of trying to get right into the sweet spot so you can exercise And then also predict how exercise will affect your blood sugar, which will vary based on how the wind is blowing and the weather. And just kind of balancing all that. It's something, because it sounds like a lot to describe it, but it most days does kind of run in the background and you kind of get a routine going. But Mm -hmm. it is kind of a constant thing that you're trying, trying to keep this car on the road at all times. So as far as figuring out the insulin that you need for these different activities or meals. 
Was this something that you were, like, guided to and, like, taught to do by your endocrinologist? Or is this something that, like, you kind of just had to take and figure out on your own? That's actually a very interesting subject area um, because actually for pediatric patients that are diagnosed, they assemble a whole team. They tell them how to count carbs. They tell them all this information. They go over all of that. There's a little bit of a gap when adults are diagnosed, I think because it's less common. So uh, whenever I was diagnosed, I was actually told to use set dosing, which is a very bad idea, which is basically I was told just take four units at every single meal. And the problem with that is you're going to either go high or low pretty much all the time using that. So a lot of this I actually figured out myself. Um, I think there are available resources, but just my situation, I ended up mm. kind of trial and erroring it, um, which I'm still here, so it's good. But it's a little <laughs> scary when you're thinking about high or low blood sugar can have, like chronically, it can have long-term effects and... Right. It can have long-term effects and also, especially low blood sugar, can have pretty scary short-term effects. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I was living alone as well and was, I think, thankfully a little oblivious to exactly how scary things could be at the time. Mm -hmm. That kind of gradually dawns on you of what the consequences could be. Um, but definitely, if you're misdiagnosing insulin, very dangerous things can happen. This is a drug that could very easily kill you if you're using it incorrectly. So it's, it's a life-saving, wonderful drug, but you have to be careful. And so, yeah, a lot of trial and error. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for my science background, actually, because being able to process data and, you know, have a hypothesis and test it, see the results, redo the hypothesis, that's actually a lot of what managing type 1 diabetes is like. So being a scientist is great when it comes to this. It makes me think, though, that there's a gap currently in the treatment of people who have to take insulin if they're not being properly, like, coached on, like, how to do it. It's, it's something that definitely comes back to haunt me sometimes because actually um, my first endocrinologist was really great, but one thing that happened is I actually had my first dose of insulin ever and then was immediately put in my car to go to a different clinic to get more information without being warned at all about hypoglycemia, the effects of low blood sugar. And thinking back now, I'm just like, oh my goodness, that was so dangerous to put me on the road behind a car um, without knowing any of this stuff. So I'm very grateful that it turned out okay. But like those gaps in education are terrifying. Well, and it's easy to want to, because your first assumption is that the doctor won't tell you something that's wrong or won't put you in a situation that could be dangerous to you. Like I'm sure that no doctor around would knowingly do that, but they have, they're also juggling lots of things. Maybe they've been at work for 10 hours already have other patients to see you don't even your first instinct isn't to think wait is this actually a good idea or is this doctor just trying to move me on out so that to the next thing so they can clear up something on their plate so that's yes. well and I know doctors are under a ton of pressure too mm -hmm. I think my appointment was supposed to be like 20 minutes this doctor spent probably 45 minutes with me so I definitely screwed up her whole day I'm sure people in the waiting room were super angry at her that day so she really did a good job of trying, but like it is very tough when you have a sudden diagnosis of a very major illness. And something that is a little bit weird with me too is I'm pretty much the only one I know that was that bad off that spent no time in a hospital. 
whatsoever. Because usually you would be admitted to a hospital. If you walk into an ER with a blood sugar of 500, usually you would be admitted. The fact that I was released, questionable. But like I said, at least it worked out. So, Just seems like a very high stakes thing just to sort of be like, well, here's your insulin, here's your needles, here's your glucose monitor, good luck kid, see you in three months. Actually, one of the things the ER doctor said was, you seem like a reasonable person, so I feel safe discharging you at this point. Which, once again, things turned out fine. I have great friends that watched over me for a while, but it is kind of a scary situation for sure, especially since in my head, I was thinking, I'm not sure this, I don't feel confident this is type two. Therefore, I went home, I got home at like 8 p.m. And I was doing pretty fine until I got home and I opened my refrigerator. And that's when I remember just being like, I don't know what I can eat right now. And my blood sugar is already like 300. I'm not sure this drug is the right drug for me. I don't know what I should do. So I basically ate scrambled eggs until I had time to go see and see the endocrinologist because scrambled eggs are pretty safe. So you have been diagnosed and living with uh, type 1 for a few years now and um, you have a lot of, you've been doing a lot of work with uh, JDRF and other people who have type 1 diabetes. We were kind of curious to know what are some of the misconceptions that people might have about type 1? So there are definitely a few of these. Um, you develop a few pet peeves pretty fast with type 1. The first one that always has to be said up front, I think, is the misconception that type 1 is caused by lifestyle choices, namely eating too much sugar. And I get why this is a thought that's out there, but I have to say approaching someone with type 1 and asking about their sugar habits is probably not a great way to make a friend. So as you guys have probably covered, it has a pretty complex cause that isn't really even understood. So the way it's been explained to me is genetic with a trigger. So we know there's some genetics behind it, but it's not clear cut. It's not like you have a single gene that caused it. And then there are certain triggers that have been kind of linked to it that in the environment, but no one is the same and no one has the same thing. So it's a really complex discussion. And at the end of the day, there's no evidence that it's sugar, it's autoimmune. So it's not a sugar thing. That's the number one. Cupcakes are not priming your immune system for destruction. Cupcakes are not. Um, I did eat quite a few cupcakes back in the day and I have no regrets because they're cupcakes I got in my life and I miss them. And you were living a healthy <laughs> lifestyle. It was just an autoimmune reaction. I was, I was living reaction. a healthy lifestyle. I was exercising and this happens. As healthy, healthy as you can be in grad school. As healthy as you can be as a graduate student. I was doing pretty good. The second one we kind of already covered, which is just type 1 is a childhood disease. Just want to point out again, clearly not a childhood disease. Mostly, but there are exceptions, and it's really important to recognize that so that people get a correct diagnosis. And then, that's what I mentioned, the myth, and it's a two-part myth that's going to be very confusing, so get ready for that. The myth that type 1 diabetics can't eat certain foods but also paired with that, the myth that type, type 1 diabetics can eat whatever they want. I'm going to pair those together because, surprisingly, I've actually gotten pressure on both sides. I've gotten the, you shouldn't be eating that, and I've gotten the, why don't you just take insulin and deal with it and stop being a problem child. And at the end of the day, it's just a really complex topic once again. It's a highly individual thing, and it depends on so many factors. 
And for people that have been managing type one for a while, I think it's good to recognize that like we have so many things in our head that we are always weighing and measuring. So whenever I'm thinking about food, I'm thinking about where my glucose currently is. When I last exercised, what my day has been like, if I'm stressed out, that affects glucose. If I'm getting sick, it affects glucose. So I might say no to one food one day and yes to the exact same food the next day. And I think it's good to have a certain level of trust that I know what I'm doing and I'm making the choices that are best for me and being responsible. And so it might be hard for an outsider to see, but there are so many micro decisions happening and I promise it's under control. Well, it must be kind of frustrating to hear people sort of judging you as you eat either way. It's definitely easy to get defensive and I try not to too much, um, but there's a certain amount of, you know, like I'm taking a pretty challenging situation and I think doing a pretty good job with it. So when someone else tries to tell me what I should be doing based on their grandma that had diabetes and lost a leg, it's a tough situation and you do hear that story. Like I hear that story a lot. And so just have some trust that type one diabetics are, you have to become an expert in your body and how your body reacts to things and really are pretty good at that. So managing. Are there any questions that you get frequently? I mean, a lot of the questions I get do have to do with like, well, do you miss this or do you miss that? I get that a lot, actually. Like, do you miss the cupcakes? And it's a really interesting thing because I have a huge sweet tooth. I'm going to be honest. And the way I choose to manage type 1, I do greatly minimize the amount of sugar that I eat because I really like feeling healthy. I like feel like I'm doing good things for my body and minimizing the risks that I have with this disease. And at the end of the day, there is a thing that happens that like that's more important to me now. And I have been able to kind of re-see food as more fuel and less recreation. So there's still room for those things in my life, but I don't feel like I'm deprived. Like I cook things that I enjoy eating. I like I enjoy my diet and I'm fine with that. So to view it as being deprived all the time, that really isn't the key thing. Like that isn't the key thing I stress about. Um, the key thing that I stress about, to be honest, is those pretty high stakes decisions that get made every day. Like, I don't mind missing a cupcake. What stresses me out is the fact that if I make a bad choice before I go to bed at night, I could be in a very dangerous situation very fast. That to me is the daily grind of type 1 diabetes. That's much more important than a needle stick or missing out on a cupcake. It is these high stakes things that we deal with every day. So I know that you have a continuous glucose monitor, uh, which yes, was do. a big upgrade in your technological type one life. I treated myself, yes. <laughs> to life-saving medical to technology. To life-saving <laughs> medical technology. Um, and I know that you are very knowledgeable about a lot of the innovations going on in the type one diabetes sort of technology field. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of, a couple of the new things that people have been working on? Sure. So I actually find this to be very interesting because gadgets are fun. We all love gadgets. And yeah, the continuous glucose monitor is a huge one for me. It is my favorite piece of technology in the world, for sure. I'm very grateful for it. And basically what this is, is if you're used to what you see with diabetes management, you probably think of someone who's sticking their finger and getting a little bit of blood 
and then measuring it on a test strip in a little device to see what their blood sugar is. And that is actually a huge innovation as well. To have that at home, that was a big deal not that long ago. But we actually have a really cool thing now where I actually have a sensor. So there's more needles involved because I'm a diabetic. So there's always a needle involved. And there's actually a sensor under the skin and then a transmitter clipped to it. And what this does is every five minutes, it actually can transmit my blood sugar to a device. So in my case, I actually use my iPhone. There's an app for that. And every five minutes, I can know my blood sugar on my phone. And this is a huge, amazing thing. And I just wanted to tell one story. This is actually why I got the device to show like why it's so amazing, because it's a big deal. Every night before bed, before bed is kind of like a very critical time because you're about to go to sleep for four to eight hours, depending on who you are. And that car that is your blood sugar has to stay on the road that entire time. You have to figure out how to get down that path. And so the decision you make about having a snack before bed or taking insulin before bed makes a huge difference. And so back before I had the monitor, there was a night that I checked myself. My blood sugar was 130, which is a very good level before bed for me, usually. And so I was like, great, we're good to go. And I went to bed. And about 30 minutes later, I started to feel very, very bad. Like I was lying in bed and very quickly, I started to feel sweaty and shaky. Classic, classic low blood sugar. But it happened really fast to the point that by the, fact that by the time that I realized it and got out of bed and went looking for sugar, I was already disoriented. Uh, my vision was getting kind of blurry, which is like the most scary symptom for me ever. And I actually was so disoriented that I had forgotten like where my sugar was in my house. I somehow ended up in my hall closet in my purse and thankfully got some sugar. So it's a situation that looked fine to start and it escalated really fast. And so one of the cool things about the CGM or the glucose monitor continuous is it gives you context for your blood sugar. If you're at 130, you don't know with a standard device if you're holding steady, if you're climbing really fast, or if you're falling really fast. So that night, I was clearly falling really fast. And with a continuous glucose monitor, you have data every five minutes to show you you are falling down a hill, you're getting to a bad place. And so it really helps with those decisions. Providing that context is so huge. It's amazing. Instead of just looking at a snapshot, to be able to watch the whole movie in itself right. instead of just one frame. Yeah. And then a key mm -hmm. part of that, of course, is also the fact that that device I can set to send me alarms to my phone when I go too high or too low so that I will wake up easily. Because there's also a problem where low blood sugar will not always wake a person up at night. And some people develop an increasing resistance to waking up at night when they have low blood sugar. So... This gives me the most annoying alarm that I can program so that I will get up. And it's a huge blessing, huge, amazing thing because I'll actually program it to go off at a level where I don't feel sick yet. And so I can eat something and fix it before I even have the sweaty, shaky, eating the entire refrigerator feeling. And it really, I mean, the fact that with a traditional method, your main source of telling you that you're not okay is feeling terrible. The freedom to feel terrible less is amazing. So I'm a huge fan. Um, is it something that stays in there permanently? Right. So with the CGM, you're supposed to change the sensor every seven days. 
Some of us may experiment with leaving it a little longer. Not recommended. I'm not not a doctor. Not that kind of doctor. Um, <laughs> but in theory, every seven days, you would change the sensor yeah, to a new site. And as a disclaimer, uh, what I use for management, I actually use multiple daily injections. So I take shots every time I'm going to eat a meal to deal with food. And then I take a second shot, which is a long-acting insulin. And that's an insulin that actually releases over 24 to 36 hours usually. And that actually deals with sort of an underappreciated part of type 1 diabetes, which is that your liver actually stores, has stored sugar as well that it will dump into your bloodstream at the slightest stimulus, basically. <laughs> it's a little bitter, a little bitterness there, but your liver actually dumps sugar into your blood as well. And so you actually have to have a basal level of insulin all the time. Even if you aren't eating food, your liver is gonna make you fluctuate. So that's what I do. But a really, really cool thing that a lot of people use is an insulin pump, um, where you can actually design a program that will continuously infuse insulin through a needle under your skin as well. And that's a really cool innovation because it's a lot more flexible than a shot. So you can program in different levels for every time of day because for a lot of us, every time of day is different in our sensitivity. There are some fun fluctuations that happen with your hormones throughout the day. Just all together, a very, a very fun game to play. And so you can do this program, you can adjust it. And one of the other really cool things with the insulin pump is that you can actually completely turn it off basically and suspend insulin. So for me, that long acting shot that I take, once I take it, that's in my system for 24 hours. That's my day. For insulin pump users, they can actually suspend all insulin a lot faster, which can help them deal with low blood sugar a lot faster. So that's a cool device that a lot of people use. If you've seen someone with a little, kind of looks like a pager, but with a tube coming out of it, that's what they have. And there are actually some really cool innovations coming up with that as well. Um, so first of all, there's a type of insulin pump that's actually a pod. So there's no tube heading to a little device. It's tube free. Um, a lot of people like to use that because the tube can get like hooked on things and mm. <laughs> not a great thing. So that's a really cool thing people have done to actually have a little pod instead of a tube connected to uh, your insulin source. And then I think one of the coolest things that's coming up is the attempts to have what's called an artificial pancreas is, I know, bionic woman, we're getting there, we're so close. We can rebuild it. We can rebuild it. And so the idea behind an artificial pancreas is basically, right now what we do requires human thought and input. So you have a continuous monitor and you have an insulin pump, but as a human, you have to look at the monitor, see where things are going, look at your pump, program things in. And the idea behind developing an artificial pancreas is to take the human out of it so that we don't have to worry about it anymore and just the machines take over everything, which is not at all apocalyptic, I promise. Also like the premise to the Terminator slash the Matrix. We're basically trying to make ourselves into Terminators. Um, I'm here for it. I'm, I'm here for it as One well. pancreas at a time. <laughs> I'm here for it as well, for sure. And we're actually getting really close to this. Uh, there is a device that was approved by the FDA last year that does integrate the CGM with the insulin pump and allow it to make some decisions about suspending insulin when you get low, things like that, that could be critical life-saving functions, which are really great. 
one of the things that is still a bit of a holdup is that you have insulin, which can decrease your blood sugar, but ideally you also need to incorporate a second thing that can increase your blood sugar when needed. Because if you're doing like really intense exercise, even if you suspend insulin delivery, there's a chance you could still go low. So you need something to pump you back up again. And people have been trying to use glucagon for that. Glucagon is great. It's already being used for emergency shots for type 1 diabetics that go super low, like in the ER. You can have a glucagon injection. It stimulates the liver to dump sugar into your blood. The problem is that glucagon is not very stable. We're actually, I try to look on the bright side. We're very lucky that insulin is fairly stable. That is great. We need that one the most. Um, but they're trying to figure out how to make glucagon stable enough to be incorporated in this system so that you can just have your CGM, look at your readings, and have a pump that just brings you up and down as needed. So ideally, we will all be bionic and it will be fantastic. That's interesting that glucagon is the holdup then. But I would be curious if they know the receptor, if they couldn't just design a drug that binds the receptor and like right. stimulates it like glucagons. I would think the hard part would be that you would have to make Surely it so that it done. binds the receptor for the right amount of time, right? Because I think that we're really good mm -hmm. at making really sticky oh, like receptor yeah. drugs. And we're really good at making ones that don't have very good affinity, but for that sweet spot, because that might be one of those things where if you have too much of it, then you just need more insulin and then you're just playing this horrible game. I think that could be a problem. Um, luckily, I've never had to receive a glucagon shot, but I have been told and warned that it does fairly violently raise your blood sugar. There's usually vomiting involved, so not great. I mean, it saves your life if you have low blood sugar, but I think getting the dose of that response right probably is a problem. Mm -hmm. So Now I'm just curious how much sugar is actually stored in your liver. Like if it just pressed like the exit button, like how much? Cleanse. <laughs> Everyone out. <laughs> Everyone out. How much is it just like holding in there for a rainy day? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, but it's really interesting too, because like a fairly small amount of carbohydrate actually has a pretty big impact on my blood sugar. And that was something that I hadn't really realized. Like, when people say, like, well, can't you have a bite? And it's like, actually, five or six grams of sugar is going to raise me significantly. So it's pretty sensitive, actually, the system is. Yeah. Are there any of these innovations that you are particularly excited about? So I guess I'm pretty picky because what I really want is to be actually fixed without some kind of external need for insulin. So I really want a inside-out cure for this. And so there are a couple of really cool things being done. Um, some people will ask me why we don't do pancreas transplants, which makes sense. And the main reason for that is just you have to take immunosuppressive drugs. Like with any transplant that you get, it's a pretty last-ditch thing because immunosuppressive drugs can have really bad effects on you. So surprisingly enough, managing with insulin is usually considered a lot better than dealing with those effects. So one of the things that I'm really excited about and have a lot of hope for are people that are actually trying to develop an encapsulation system. They make insulin-producing cells in the laboratory and then put them inside some kind of device that is sort of protective against your body's reaction and then actually putting that, implanting that inside of you, which would allow your body to actually produce insulin within your body as a natural response, like it's supposed to, in theory, in an environment that is more protected from your body's attack against it. 
that is what I have a lot of hope for. I really hope, you know, they're working on it. There's always challenges because science is hard, but I have a lot of hope that that will be a thing in my lifetime. So I'm fingers crossed for that one still. That's really exciting. And that's kind of like a making a pancreas in a protective shield. Yeah, it, it is like a little, little pancreas shield. So do the antibodies from the original autoimmune response that initially causes the type 1 onset, do they linger? Have they tested like, you know, several years out after your pancreas is already, weren't they? So I don't believe they do, but that is only based on me being told... I was told by a doctor in the clinic that if you are too far after diagnosis, that they won't really detect those antibodies anymore. Mm -hmm. So that's the information I was given, at least. I'd want to double check it to be sure. And I also don't know if you, like, reintroduce pancreas cells, if they would come back as a response. There could be a chance that Mm -hmm. if you had any functioning cells for them to attack, they would come back and get Mm -hmm. the lone survivors, so... Thinking about the way the immune system works is that you leave a couple lingering antibodies, but sometimes you just have like that memory in the cells right. that makes the antibodies. Yes. So, but I could see if you were engineering like, you know, induced pluripotent stem cells, which we can take in the lab, we can treat cells to make them sort of whatever we want them to be. So I wonder if that is probably a way to work around it, perhaps. Definitely. And that's actually something that when I was first diagnosed, I got a little bit salty about because... Uh, When you're diagnosed, especially as an adult, it tends to be a slower process. And so when I was diagnosed, I probably had some functional cells left because there's actually a period called the honeymoon period, which is a very, it's a misnomer, guys. It really is. It's a bad honeymoon. Right. That when you're first diagnosed and you first start taking insulin, your body can kind of bounce back a little bit. And so for some people, there's actually a period where they actually appear to maybe even not be diabetic. They're that good. Because it kind of like refreshes the cells that are left and they start to take over. Eventually, though, your immune system gets them. It's just, it's life. But as a scientist, knowing this is happening, I was asking my doctor, like, if there are remaining cells in there, let's get them and freeze them. Like, why aren't we getting these survivors and cryopreserving them so that later when we figure out the immune system part, we can regrow some pancreas cells and put them back in there. And of course, they're like, Krista, like, that's just not... It's not a standard thing we can just do. And I'm like, but I have a nitrogen freezer. I can do this myself. Um, I can't. I didn't. I swear. The pancreas is really hard to access though, right? Because that's one of the problems with- for sure. As a cancer, as two cancer people in this room, I mean, we know that the pancreas is, it's a very vascular. So there's a lot of blood vessels going in and out, which makes it hard to stick it with anything because you can cause a lot of bleeding. And it's kind of nestled in the midst of all of your Right. In your, in your anatomy, it's really wedged back there. So it would be a major surgery to try to go in and rescue a few living pancreas cells. So, But it's I, a good idea. I get why we couldn't, but it was really tough for me to be like every day oh. looking down at my abdomen just like, I know you're still there, guys. I'm coming for you. But I wasn't, so... Thank you for fighting the good fight. Thank you for fighting the good fight as you are just mowed down one by one by an immune system that was kind of being a jerk. Do people ever try to take a somewhat immunosuppressive like regimen while you're in this process? Because I would wonder, so as uh, we've talked before, I had Guillain-Barre as a child, which means that my body developed an autoimmune response against the myelin coating on my nerves. So I actually mostly lost the ability to walk for a chunk of time and had to sort of relearn how to have a normal gait. But the amazing thing about Guillain-Barre is that it's really scary 
if left untreated, but the treatment for Guillain-Barre is immunoglobulins, which are produced by your body normally. And what they do is they just give you a bag, an IV bag full of immunoglobulins, which costs a lot of money. So thanks for donating your plasma. And that actually sort of masks the immune response. It kind of floods the system with other stuff to prevent it from getting your nerves. And eventually it just stops. So we've had this conversation before about... Right, because I find it very intriguing that you have an autoimmune disorder that eventually kind of reverses. Like that, mm-hmm. that to me is like a golden thing to study. I'm very intrigued by that. I know. I wonder if people have ever talked about trying to take some lessons from that book and think about for people like like you were probably when you first were diagnosed, uh, you know, is there a way that we can at least slow this to make it a little bit less of a bumpy ride or even potentially leave it so even having a couple of functional beta cells, a fraction of the right initial population would probably greatly improve your experience. Yeah, and I think um, one of the key things that might fit that category, um, which I'm only qualified like on a surface level to discuss, but I know they were doing trials actually with the BCG vaccine, which is a vaccine that was actually developed originally for tuberculosis treatment, but surprisingly has a bunch of functions because of the way it affects the immune system. And there have been trials actually using that vaccine in very newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes patients to try to see if it can delay or maybe even halt the progression of the disease. Um, But those were trials that really did require, I think they wanted patients within 90 days of diagnosis with the disease. And I think those were pretty promising. So I know they're looking at some things with how manipulating the immune system during that early period could maybe halt or at least slow the progression. If you're interested in learning more about vaccines, please make sure that you've listened to episode one. Well, and two people here got their flu shot today, so we are very much repping the vaccine life today. Thank you for protecting your immunocompromised people like me. We are your herd. (laughs) Okay, so just to kind of close it up. So for our listeners out there, we've talked a lot about diabetes in this episode, but is there one thing that you wish that people could take away from this sort of conversation that we've had about type 1? There definitely is. So, and I'm going to get a little on the touchy-feely track, but there is a science aspect to this. And I really hope that people can come from this and maybe give some thought to the fact that this is a serious disease. And I'm pretty sure we all at some point, if you've been on Facebook, you have seen a picture of a dessert or a picture of a very good meal with a hashtag diabetes or a diabetes life tagged to it. And of course, on a personal level, guys, that's really not great. Let's be nice human beings. Let's all be kind. But I also really want to bring up the fact that I truly believe that those misconceptions and that misinformation actually has a very real impact on patients and on life. So one of the things is that advocacy is really important for this disease and knowledge. And when you have jokes about this disease, I think it really does hamper efforts to get advocacy for better access to medical care and for actually cure research, for actually doing the research. You know, people have to care and get behind these causes. And if we're making jokes about it, people aren't caring as much. And it can seem like kind of an abstract thing, but I wanna stress that this is actually a very real problem. Insulin is a very expensive drug. We could talk for a while about why it should not be an expensive drug. There's a lot of history behind insulin and 
amazing discovery, amazing science story that maybe has gone slightly wrong in recent years with how we've been pricing drugs. It's a very expensive medication. People in a very real world struggle with access to the things they need to treat this disease. So it's very much possible to reduce bad effects later in life, but people have to have access to healthcare they need for that to actually be a thing. And in the support groups that I'm a part of, I was so shocked early on with the number of requests for help there were in those groups. On a regular basis, you see people saying, I can't afford supplies this month. Can anyone spot me some insulin to get through this month? It's a very real thing. In developing countries, it's a huge thing. Here in the US, it's a huge thing. People actually do die from lack of access to healthcare for this disease. And I realize that I'm pretty privileged. I have good health care. I have a job that I can thankfully afford the cool gadgets sometimes. It's not super easy and affordable, but I can do it. And even with that, I've been shocked by how hard it is to get sympathy and supplies for this disease. So I have encountered people that just aren't taking it very seriously when I need things. I actually had to survive on samples from the doctor for like two weeks because it took that long for me to adequately prove that I really needed this medication to everybody involved. These are very, very real things that are happening to patients in America. And I just want everyone to sit down and give a little thought to the fact that, you know, there aren't many diseases that you would make a joke about. You're not gonna make a joke about breast cancer. You shouldn't make a joke about breast cancer. And so I would recommend that we also maybe just give some thought to the fact that this is a very serious cause. It's affecting people in a very real way. And let's all just be a little kind, just a little kind, even on the internet where it's easy to not be kind. Let's just be kind. And hopefully a little bit more knowledge will help people be a little bit more kind because we really feel like knowledge is power. And a lot of these jokes that are made in poor taste probably come from just a place of just not knowing. Right, and definitely. Probably not often malice, maybe sometimes. But <laughs> Maybe sometimes. And just as a quick side note to that, a lot of people will say like, well, we didn't mean type one, we meant type two. I just wanna point out for a minute, they're very different diseases at the same time. It's still not cool to blame someone for a disease that's impacting their life. It's much more preferable to give them the support they need to live a good life. Absolutely, no one deserves to be sick. I believe that. Dr. Manton, thank you so much for being here. This has been thank really you. great. And if anyone's interested in um, talking more with Dr. Manton, you can leave questions or comments for her on our Facebook page and we will relay the message.